Well, this is our last week of Lent, and I want to draw your attention to this morning to this little tag that we've been using all Lent, known in our pain and loved in our sin. And it's, you know, been on our cards that we've been handing to you. It's been up here on the screen for the whole six weeks of Lent. And I want to just wonder with you a few minutes this morning if we can really trust that or if it's just a nice tagline. (laughs) It's a rather nice tagline. But I wonder if it's the kind of thing that you can actually place your confidence in. Like, could you really bet your life on that? Could, Could you really act as if that's true the way someone who has confidence, like when I stepped on this platform, I didn't wonder whether it would hold me. I just had a natural ease, uh, kind of a confidence about it. It didn't feel religious. It didn't feel legalistic or like works or grunting. There was just a real natural ease of walking up here because I had a real confidence that this would hold me. And I wonder if it's possible to come to that kind of place in our lives where we have that kind of ease and confidence that we are really known in our pain and that we're never really doing life alone and that we're actually loved in our rather ongoing sin. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, a major preoccupation of my life has been how to do life right. And I've just had this kind of gnawing thing in me that there was always a righter way of doing life and that I should just be finding this more right way of doing life. And I can remember having many conversations with my earliest mentor about what was the highest and best use of my life. Because I've always been one of those guys who could do a lot of things fairly well, not really great at any one thing. That would have made life a lot simpler. Um, But I was just kind of multi-talented, not really great at anything. And so much of probably my first two decades of trying to walk with Jesus was just full of this neurotic thing of I could just find a way of letting God use me better. And that, of course, leads to a massive focus, even obsession, on doing. And I don't mean that in just sort of the cheesy way you often hear of, well, Christianity is not about performance, you know. I don't mean it in that way. I mean, that's all true. But I mean something different here. I mean the kind of things that leads to literal obsessions with these kinds of questions. What about the choices I've made that didn't pan out? coulda, shoulda, woulda done it better. Or the kind of obsessions that some of us have with what have I done with my life so far? You know, am I wasting years? All my goals aren't being met. Life's not unfolding the way I thought it would. I certainly didn't see adultery coming. I didn't see a sick child coming. I certainly didn't see being laid off from my job coming. Life's just not unfolding the way I thought it would. Well, how do we deal with the fear that our lives will be actually disappointing to God? Not that we're known in those painful places and loved when we make mistakes, but actually we're a great disappointment to God. See, I, I can't, obviously I can't speak for you, but for myself, I'm quite sure that this neurotic drive to make sure that I was living my life, you know, to its utmost, you know, my utmost for his highest, great book, I love it. And it can be done in peace. But for lots of us, what happens is we're actually really fearful that we're disappointing to God. 
that somehow the way we're doing life isn't what it could or should be. So is there a way of, you know, kind of my utmost for his highest, is there a way of doing that in this sort of peaceful way? And the answer is happily yes. But it's not rooted in doing. It's rooted in a really major, major New Testament idea that is largely lost today. And it's called union in Christ. And it goes something like this. What's true of Jesus will be true of you. So what are we doing today? Into Jerusalem, high praise, things are going well, things go south, he's crucified, but we'll be back here next Sunday on Easter and he's risen from the dead and it's all good forever. What's true of Jesus will be true of you. And this is why union, kind of like a train going down the tracks. Jesus is the firstborn. Remember that phrase from the New Testament? He's the first fruits. So he's like the engine and he's pulling this train of people like us so that what is true of him will be true of us. And that is the secret to dropping the neurosis. It's not that we no longer care about are we doing life the best we can. It's not that we don't care about that stuff. Is that we now can think about it in a completely different way, this way of union. Because what this means, the reason this is so freeing, it means that the main plot line of our life has already been written. And this is part of what it means that Jesus is the way. And so we're all going to experience the big emotions and trials of this life. Like, come on, think about one right now. What, what's a big emotion happening in your life right now? Or what's a big trial going on for you right now? Just think of one. We're all going to experience those. It's not that we're not going to experience the ups and downs that we even talk about here in Holy Week. It just means that they're not the main plot lines of our lives. The main plot lines of our lives is that we're going to end up just like Jesus with glorified bodies in the glory of God's presence. And this, this idea of union with Christ, this is the safety net in which we do complex modern life. This is a sign of union you are known in your pain because you're hooked to that train. And that train's like a neural system. And you're, you're known. You're never alone. You're never separated. You're never a car that's like on a sidetrack somewhere. Known in your pain, loved in our sin. But the fickle crowd of today's reading, it gives us a window into our divided hearts about trusting Jesus. Because if you think about it, the New Testament story tells us that there's something about Jesus that people naturally resist and actually try to eliminate. So remember the time in Nazareth where they tried to throw him off a cliff? The religious leaders constantly tried to muzzle him. The religious rulers, as we just talked about, condemned him to die. And there's something about all that in us too, I think if we're honest about it, that we want to love and trust but we feel alone in our pain. Or here's a big one for me that maybe you can relate to. Betrayed by our own expectation and vision for our lives. That there's some betrayal in there. Sometimes it gets focused on God. Sometimes it gets focused on others. He or she's in my way. You know, if I just had different kids that weren't such a bother or if I had a different boss. So sometimes that betrayal gets put on somebody else. Oftentimes it gets put on our own choices and stuff. The things that we've done. 
And so we don't have this sense of kind of a unified inner being. Actually, for lots of us, we begin to experience the self-hatred of sin because we're actually not really convinced that we're loved in our sin. Not in the same way that I'm convinced that I can go from one of these steps to the other and it's not an issue. There's because we've got that sort of crowd thing in us. And so what we do typically is when we realize, I mean, you know, think of it this way, like if I had a hoodie on instead of a sweater, you know, with a zipper, you know, ever tried to, you know, when your hoodie or sweater or something, it got caught and how frustrating that is. And you can actually pull on it hard enough, it starts hurting your fingers, right? You ever experienced that? You know, you just, and you get madder and madder, is it, right? So we've all got that thing going on in us. But what's possible is that other feeling of things just coming together. But what we end up doing in those frustrating moments, the vast majority of us, is that we try to hide this pain with noise and activity. And this is why I know if we hang together for the next couple of decades, you're liable to get tired of hearing me say this, but I just have to say, I'm sorry, you're gonna keep hearing me say this. This is why I'm gonna consistently insist on silence and solitude. Because it is the only remedy to breaking the power of that frustration and, and pain and, 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 and that kind of self-medication that just fills our lives with more and more activity, kind of like if I just keep doing more and more things, well, maybe one of them will be right and I'll have that sense of things coming together. If I just fill my life with enough noise, then I won't be able to hear these self-accusations. Because what I think is true of us is that it is stunning if you think about it how fast that crowd turned on Jesus, right? Well, I don't know about you, but I can make that shift from quiet time at six in the morning to the first phone call at seven, right? I mean, maybe I'm the only one like that. But I have the capacity to make these shifts really fast. And it makes me aware of my own splintered and fractured self. So that Palm Sunday then is not just a nice little Bible uh, story. It's actually a picture of the human condition. How we resist the love and mercy and truth that are in Jesus. And how there are things in us that want to silence him, preferring our own agendas. And this mentality is not just seen in the crowds, it's seen, seen in the soldiers. Remember how we just read that the, the ringleaders made faces at Jesus, taunting him, saying he saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. Oh, he's the Messiah, the chosen one. Yeah, right. Or the thieves on the cross. One mocks, the other pleads to participate in Jesus' kingdom. And so as I said, when we were just praying before thinking about these words, I would like us to wonder this morning, what are the places of opposition and doubt and questions in our lives to the love and the acceptance of Jesus. Maybe to take this morning and ask yourself, what is it you're afraid of? And I wonder if, as I read you these next two thoughts, if these would allow us to put our real selves out on the table with Jesus. Like, I wonder, can you even really do that? Can you put your real self out there? Or are you kind of so ashamed of your real self that you can't even really put it out there? But if these two thoughts are true, I wonder if we can listen to them. John 3, 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn its people. He sent him to save them. Or this tender word repeated by Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, I won't break off a bent reed or put out a dying flame. So I wonder if those things are true of him. Could that help us to come to the conclusion that we actually are known in our pain and loved in our sin? And if that could somehow lead us to something other than crazy attempts at performing. But if there would be a way to just abide. So think of that analogy again. What's true of Jesus, who's the first, who is the first fruits of what is to happen to everybody else, who is the body of Christ. Or think of him as the head. And he's going on ahead and we're the body and that's all gonna happen to us as well. I wonder then if we could learn to just abide in that. And that is the New Testament message that unfortunately has gotten buried in favor of going to heaven when you die. You are going there. There's, I don't doubt heaven and I don't doubt that you're going there. But I'm telling you, that is not the high note of the New Testament. The high note of the New Testament for the people who came after Jesus, for John the Beloved, it was union in Christ. For Paul, Paul's main thing was not, you know, justification by faith as the mechanism by which people come, become saved. Paul's thing was, are you in Christ? In Christo, E-N in the Greek, Christo, is a probably used 200 times by Paul or more. It, it, it was his preoccupation. Are you really in Christ? Are you, so, that, so that what was true of him as he related to his father could be true of us as we relate to him. And one of the things that's so amazing about this, I mean, that more than we could talk about here in a few minutes, is that if this is true, that we're just learning to abide in Jesus learning to notice and recognize all the ways that I either am or aren't connected to Jesus. This means really cool things like my career in school and marriage choices aren't the core definitions of my life. Did you hear that? This means that the core definition of my life are not the choices that we all obsess about all the time. Did I take the right job? Did I go to the right school? Am I on the right career track? Because what this union in Christ thing that the New Testament screams at us says this, the plot line of your life is not near as important as the quality of your life. In other words, if you have the quality, see being in Christ is not a performance oriented thing, it's a qualitative idea. And so then what becomes really important about the Christian life and Christian spirituality is that we have this quality of connectedness. This is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said the only thing that matters to a branch is one thing and one thing only that matters to a branch. Is it connected? If it's connected to the tree, it has life. Without it, it is dying and will be thrown into the trash heap where it will be burned. So what the, the picture of the New Testament is, this capacity that God has given us, this invitation that he's given us to be in union 
with him. So then the key questions of life aren't so much, am I doing things right? But it's, am I connecting? Am I feeding on Jesus? Think of how freeing it would be to be able to take our attention off the unknowable variations of life and the unknowing variables of the future and to focus instead on being in Christ and being transformed through that union. But as I said when I began, I've been told and deeply believed my whole life that I will make a difference in this life by what I do, my actions, my accomplishments, my achievements, my work. And I've tried. I've tried all kinds of ways to make a difference. Started churches, written books, taught at seminaries and universities. I've, I've worked hard when I've had regular jobs. I've tried my whole life to somehow live a kind of life that would make a difference. But what this alerts us to is this. Our work is not God's work. And our projects, even starting a church like Holy Trinity, it's not God's projects. We are God's project. The only thing that's gonna last forever is the kinds of people we become in the carrying out of our life's work. Grandma, Grandpa, teacher, office worker, none of it's going to last. The office you work in will someday be raised, torn down, something put in its place. The one thing that is going to last forever is what God is doing through our union in Jesus. So even the long-term vision for Holy Trinity, you know, someday maybe owning this corner, you know, being able to put a beautiful chapel on it, being a place where the people in this community could find God and learn to follow Jesus, all that kind of stuff. You know, the first churches I ever started in the 70s are now a generation old. The very first church Debbie and I ever started in Wheeling's, you know, it's 30-some years old now. It's 1,000 people. Second church I ever started, the Vineyard in Cincinnati, is 30-some years old. It's five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. But you know what? It's not going to last forever. Someday those churches will deteriorate. The physical buildings and typically congregations don't last forever. But if I can find a way in this union in Christ business to think that I am God's project and that you are what God's working on. And as this unfolds, as God's project in us creating and maintaining this union, as it unfolds, we are known in our pain and loved in our sin. That as it unfolds with all of its ups and downs in life, it never breaks the chain of that train so that what's true of Jesus will be true of us. So in this moment of quiet, I want you to consider this, that think of these first six weeks of Lent. Maybe you want to kind of close your eyes and try to just think with me here. These first six weeks of Lent. Where have you noticed in your own heart the fickleness of the crowds? Or where have you noticed a resistance in your heart? I want you to try to get one of those. If you can, if you can't, don't worry about it. If you can get one of those, I want you to try to revisit that moment where you noticed a fickleness in you or a resistance in you. And then revisit that moment with this thought layered over it. 
I am known in my pain and I am loved in my sin.